Thank you, Georgia. I am Grace High, everybody. By God's grace and an alcoholic spouse, I am a member of the Preston Al-Anon Family Group in Dallas, Texas. Because this program works in my life one day at a time, it has not been necessary for me to plan a murder or a suicide in ten years and four months and some odd days. program works in spite of us. It has in my life in spite of me. Before I get started, I would like to thank the committee, Norman, Jean, and all of their helpers, particularly their spouses, for making it possible for me to be with you this weekend. And it is certainly one of the most outstanding experiences of my life. I'm an ocean lover, and my room faces the water and we've had water coming from all sorts of places this weekend. <laughs> but I've loved every minute of it. We even had an added one in our room. And I understand your speaker tomorrow morning got sprinkled about 3 o'clock this morning with a watering system. So I think God's trying to tell us all something. We just aren't well yet. <laughs> it's great to be here. I've had all sorts of advice this morning. My delay in getting here was the driver, who is Gene, and I had to ask him to bring me, and I was surrounded by drunks one more time. There were six of us in the car, and each one of the fellas had a different pearl of wisdom to drop on me, and I choose to ignore all of them. <laughs> Just try to tell you a bit about what I was like and what happened and what I'm trying to be like today. Basically, the only story I have to tell and the only one there is for sharing. I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, and I grew up in probably the most loving home any girl could. Mother and dad, an older brother, and a younger brother. We cared. We cared for one another, and we shared. It was a family life all the while. We were not deprived of anything at all, within reason, uh, including liquor, and my father and mother did not ever drink, but we were told that we could, and Dad said that we didn't have to hide about it, that if we ever found reason to, he would be glad to fix us our first drink, and my dad fixed me the first one I ever had. Didn't really care for it, felt like a big girl when I had it. Little did I realize that in later years, it was to become such a, an integral part of my living. I was a very competitive gal. My two brothers were not athletic-minded or sports-minded, and this gal set out to be the boy that I thought Dad wanted, because he'd been a football player all through high school and university. I couldn't play football, but I could excel in other areas, and I tried. I tried to be number one in all facets. I didn't always succeed, but I didn't ever stop trying to be number one. The reason I bring this out is for so many, many years, I blamed a little guy that I lived with for everything that happened. And I found out through people like you that everything that was wrong with me had been wrong with me way back then and that he didn't have a thing to do with it. In other words, I brought all these things with me into a marriage 34 years ago. Growing up was fun. Doing the things that kids do was fun. And it was good, clean living. I graduated from high school at the tender age of 16, completely sophisticated, completely aware of everything around me, and if you didn't think so, all you had to do was ask me. And I entered the University of Colorado, and my freshman year, one of my classmates was a Texan, and she invited me to spend the Christmas holidays with her and with her family, and I couldn't wait. The year was 1941, and some of you are old enough to remember what happened back then. December wartime. And I'd heard a lot about Texas, 
I believe it was about that time the song came out, The Stars Are at Night Are Big and Bright, Deep in the Heart of Texas, and I was excited. I was now 17, a real big wheel, I thought, and I wanted to find out about these bright stars in Texas and all the beautiful people I'd heard about. And on the train going down to Dallas, Francis said, Gracie, we'll be there two weeks and you will be dating my brother's best friend. And he's a real, they didn't use the expression neat back then, but I like it today, the kids use it. And he was a real neat guy. And she said, he's like a big brother to me, and he's a real good friend. Go out with him, have a good time with him, but just don't believe anything he says. <laughs> and I thought, okay, two can play the game. Now, in growing up and being an athlete, I had great visions of the type of man that I was going to marry. And he was going to be an all-American football player, and he was going to be six foot four, and we were going to go through life doing all these fun things. We arrived in Dallas, got off of the train, and there he stood, all five foot six of him. <laughs> And the closest he'd ever been to a football was playing in the band. But you know, it didn't make any difference, because he was different. And we dated for two weeks. And he was a big man on campus, because he told me so. He was three years older than I, and he still is three years older. He was the oldest boy I'd gone out with, and he was what we used to call smooth. It wasn't too long ago Dave and I were reminiscing and talking about our first date. And we hadn't mentioned it in a long, long time. But back then, Texas was dry pretty well everywhere. You brown bagged it. And uh, our first date was to a drive-in tavern, and he introduced me to Red Top Ale. And that should have been another introduction to what was to come, but of course, I thought this was real fun and I felt terribly grown up. At the end of two weeks, I returned to school and thought, gee, that was fun, and maybe I'll go back someday. And several months later, I was invited back to Dallas, and I went, and I dated this little guy, and we had a good time. Returned to school, and then some months later, was again invited back to Dallas and dated the same little guy. And it was at this time that we decided that we were going to be married. And it took this program, and a program of honesty, for me to realize that David didn't have a darn thing to do with his decision. I believe that I firmly convinced him that he couldn't live without me. <laughs> you see, he didn't have any plans in his life for a wife at that time. He had finished his college education and had gone on to professional school, and he had to finish his education before anything else interfered, till I came along. And living 890 some odd miles away, after we decided to be married, when he graduated, I returned to Denver, returned to school, and then the long distance calls started because he didn't like to write letters then, and he still doesn't. And I think his family and my family both decided that it was a little expensive. And about April, a little package arrived in the mail, and it was a ring. And in June, we walked down the aisle, and that was June of 1943. On June the 11th, sitting across the breakfast table, David said, you know, honey, I'll never forget this day as long as I live. And I said, how come? And he said, well, today we got married. And I thought he was so impressed with me and had such stars in his eyes over his beautiful bride. And his beautiful bride was the height that I am now, and I weighed 150 pounds. So I was square. But I thought that he was just taken completely, because you see, we had not married on June the 11th, we had married on June the 10th at 8 p.m. But on our way to the mountains in Colorado for a short honeymoon, we stopped 
and we picked up our courage. The courage we needed to consummate this marriage and the courage consisted of a bottle of booze. And we were to crawl into this bottle and stay in this bottle for the next 24 years. And yes, I crawled into it with him. You bet I did. And I drank with him for many years. I drank without him. I drank alone. And I drank with other people. The longer I'm around this program, the more convinced I am. There's just no way you can make one out of one that ain't one, kids. <clears throat> because there would have been two of us instead of one. I'd like to stop right here and tell you about a feeling I have that bothers me terribly. It may not mean a darn thing to you, but it does to me. After having been in this program over ten years, and loving it as I do, and knowing that we're in this business to save lives and not take lives, I don't know what's happening in your part of the country. I only know what's happening in our part. And we have many of our Al-Anon members who wake up one morning and say, today I'm alcoholic and I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I realize that AA tradition says the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I do kind of think you've got to take that drink before you can get the desire to stop. I've never known an alcoholic that so willingly and joyfully decided to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. There is something over on that other side that some of our Al-Anons feel they're missing. I haven't been able to figure it out, and it probably isn't any of my business with one exception, and that I just mentioned. We're in this business to save lives, not take them. And I would hate like the devil to be a sick, dying woman alcoholic and have one of these gals 12-step me. Because you see, we're the greatest cons in the world. But the one person in the world that we can't con is another alcoholic or another Al-Anon. There's just no way. We can con everybody around us. And that woman alcoholic might die. So any of you who think they're missing something on the AA side, take it from me. Be grateful and thank God every day that you live that you're not suffering from this insidious disease of alcoholism. I am thankful. Well, we sallied forth into this marriage. David had a little over two years of school to complete. We had a good time. We had a lot of fun. We had very little money, and it didn't, wasn't important. I went to work. We could afford to go out one night a week, and we always drank. We always had enough money for a bottle. Amazing, isn't it? We had enough money for spaghetti and one meatball, and that was our Saturday night out. And there were fraternity dances, and there were a lot of parties from school, and we had a good time. At the end of his education, he went into the United States Navy, active duty, and I was able to go with him. And we now had more money than we'd ever had in our lives, because he was an officer. And, of course, we didn't think about the future. Talk about living just for today. We were doing that way back then. And that's what we were doing. We were living from paycheck to paycheck. We had just so much to buy so much liquor and party so much, and we'd keep on going. And we had fun. We had a lot of fusses, and we had a lot of fights, and we had a lot of arguments. But you know, it was always so much fun making up. I don't know if anybody else did that or not. And then we'd forget about it till the next round. Might add, we still do. Uh, it was just okay, and it was an accepted way to live, and I didn't know that there was anything different. After 19, month, 19 months, David was released from active duty, and we went back to Dallas, and he went into practice, and I went to work for him. We bought our first home, and we had everything in the world going for us, and we had more money and more time to run, and more time to play, and more time to do the things that we wanted to do when we wanted to do them. 
and this is what we did. Till 1948, first little miracle in our lives arrived in the form of a little boy. I had been told I could never have children, and that was okay. We had accepted this, and yet God saw fit to deliver us with this beautiful youngster. And then along came 1949 and miracle number two in the form of a second little boy. Most people would have gotten down on their knees and said, thank you, God, but not me. Because, you see, I was a very selfish, self-centered, self-willed individual. And this was due to me. Why shouldn't I have children? I wanted them, and I always got what I wanted. So now we had the two little boys, and we were so grateful we hired a housekeeper to take care of them so we could run and play and do the things that we wanted to do. We did this in the evening, and in the daytime, I ran and played and did the things I wanted to do. I was very active in club work, was very active in the community, and thought that they couldn't do without me. I managed to spend about two hours a day with these children because I thought this was expected of me. I had a little problem called people-pleasing, and I wanted everybody to like me, and I wanted everybody to admire me, and I wanted everybody to think that I was doing everything exactly right. And nobody, I thought, knew what was going on inside of me. Because, you see, the progression of alcoholism had already begun in our lives way back then, and I didn't know it. At the end of a five-year period in Dallas, David was recalled to active duty, and it was both of our decisions to, for the children and me to remain in Dallas and uh, keep the home fires burning. And he left California. Two weeks later, he called and said, How soon can you join me? Well, the house went on the market. Furniture went in the storage. The kids and I were on our way. Couldn't wait. Because, you see, I missed my playmate. The housekeeper had to go. We couldn't afford her on Navy pay. We got out to San Clemente, California, which was in a very small town. And for the first time, I had complete responsibility of these little boys. For the first time, I was to find out what it was like to be a mother. And I loved it. I loved giving them their baths. I loved feeding them. I loved doing the things that normies do. And it was just a great big game. What I was doing was playing house. I know that today. Because, you see, at night, we'd hire a babysitter in order for us to be able to run and play and do the things that we wanted to do. And the major portion of that was driving some 80 miles to Los Angeles in order to make the old strip to drink, see the shows, and then drive back, stoned out of our ever-loving minds, the old highway before freeways. The good Lord takes care of drunks and fools. You better believe he does. And then we'd start again the next day. It wasn't to last too long because David was sent on temporary duty to Hawaii. Now the boys and I stayed in San Clemente and when Daddy left, he said, don't worry about a thing. I get paid twice a month and I'll send my checks home. And I said, fine. I wasn't worried about a thing till first paycheck came and went and no money and second paycheck time came and went and no money and I called him in Hawaii and he couldn't understand it because it had been mailed yesterday I believed him of course I did and I let it rock along a few more weeks and the same thing happened and I called him back and I got the same answer. It was mailed yesterday. It was necessary for me at this time to take legal action. And I went to the base legal officer and he said, you haven't a thing to worry about, I'll take it from here. My problems were over and his had begun. I really think that this is probably when my first true anger, fear, frustration, hostility started. At least for me to be able to recognize because I hated, oh God, I hated that man. One more time, how could he do this to me? Never realizing that there was a problem. 
And I thought, by golly, when he gets back, this is over. And I'm going to get a divorce, and I'm going out to start life over. Find a daddy worthy of these children. Well, the phone rang one morning, about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. It was a ship to shore call. And you know who was on the other end. And he said, honey, the ship docks in San Diego at such such time tomorrow morning. Would you and the boys meet me? And you know where we were. We were on that pier welcoming the hero home. You see, my playmate was back again one more time. And we started all over. The same squirrel cage, the same merry-go-round, the whole ball of wax. Running, playing, partying, drinking, fighting, fussing, feuding, crying, hollering, the whole kitten caboodle. And this wasn't to last very long, because soon the entire division was shipped to the Far East. Now, it was at this time that the children and I chose to move to Denver to be close to my family. We packed up bag and baggage. We had our own apartment. My parents were still there. Both of my brothers and their families were still there, and I have relatives by the dozens, and they were all there to look after me. Well, I sat home for a little while. I cried an awful lot back then. I believe it's commonly known today as the poor me's. And that's what I suffered from. Poor me, poor me. Why me, why me? How can he do this to me? Because you see, what had happened was total desertion. I could not get a divorce because he was out of the country and under the Soldiers and Sailors Act back then, it was an impossibility. It may be changed today. So I heard a lot. God, I was angry. Angry as I could be, and lonely, and what did I miss? I missed the only kind of life that I knew. I missed the life of the drinking, the partying, the bright lights, the music, and I missed men. I'm not proud of those days, but today I'm not ashamed. Because you see, there may be just one person in this room today that felt like I felt then, that did the things that I did then, who may think they're the only one. And I don't know about you, when I came into this program and got rid of that football in my tummy and was told that I didn't have to feel guilty anymore and that I was doing the very best that I was capable of doing under the circumstances, the weight of the world was lifted. And this is the reason I share this with you, also, because in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it tells us that in God's hands, our dark past is the greatest treasure we hold. And this is part of my dark past. Because I went out to look for a man. I didn't go to the normal places that normal people go, to the bars and this type of thing. I was too much of a coward. But I had access to all of the officers' clubs in the Denver area. And I don't know of a better place to meet a man. A whole herd of them. And I made good use of those officers' clubs. You bet your boots I did. With one ulterior motive in mind. To find the one to rescue me. Lowry Air Force was my favorite. And invariably when I mention this, somebody will come up to me and say, When were you there? <laughs> I always sat in the same place. The bar had about four stools right here, and then it had a long bar this way, and I always managed to get one of these stools right along here, because that gave me complete command of the bar. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And you know, you sit there and you look them over, and they look you over real good, and pretty soon there's a drink in front of you, and pretty soon there's somebody sitting next to you. And pretty soon he's lighting your cigarettes. And what happens? It's instant love. And of course it happened. I fell madly in love. And he was very eligible. I made darn sure they were eligible. You see, there was one thing I wasn't about to do, and that was to go out with a married man. That's pretty sick. 
because I was married, and I didn't ever take my wedding ring off. But you see, I wasn't going to do to someone else's spouse what was being done to me, and I had no earthly idea what was being done to me. David has a saying that I use every time I talk because I think it says so much. A woman's best companion when left at home alone is her imagination. Stop and think about it. And mine ran wild, and I had visions of all these things he was doing in the Far East and who he was doing it with. And I was going to show him. Of course, I was. Number one man, eligible, single, money, marvelous to my children, even offered to buy me an illegal divorce in Mexico when a darn near took him up on it. But I went to a family friend who'd known me since childhood and told him what I had in mind. And he said, honey, before you do anything, you go home, get a piece of paper. You put David's name on one side of this paper and this young man's on the other. And you write down everything you like about each of them and everything you dislike and then make your decision. Well, I don't have to tell a lot of you out there what happened. Because, you see, I now have two drunks in my life. One was in Denver and one was lost somewhere in the Far East. Didn't know it was alcohol, but they were exactly alike. I scratched him. Oh, boy, did I ever dump him in a hurry. And he was so heartbroken that he married a friend of mine ten days later. <laughs> we attract real stable people. And we're attracted to them. Well, it didn't take me long to find another. And this one even more eligible than the previous. Full colonel. Everything in the world going for him. Including booze. I didn't go to the family friend. I made my own list this time. And I found out that here was another drunk here. And the other one was in the Far East. Today, that's the only way I'd want it to be. You see, I love the alcoholic. Whether they be male or female, whether they be young or old, it doesn't make any difference. And I would not want to be married to anyone else but an alcoholic. I just want you to know one thing. If anything ever happened to David and me, and I were left alone, it'd be a drunk. But he'd have to be sober for a long time. I'm a little old to go into training. <laughs> Just don't believe I've got it in me. Well, this was to be my pattern. Yes, I was afraid, and I was hurting, and I was lonely. But it seemed that everyone that I loved or liked or was attracted to had the same characteristics, and I didn't understand it. We have the greatest line in our living with an alcoholic in chapter 3 when it says we take on the role of parents of wayward children. And I believe that describes those of us who love an alcoholic. It doesn't make any difference whether we're married to them, whether they're our children, whether they're our parents, whether they're a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We're going to mother them, every one of us. It doesn't make any difference if it's a male Alanine. We all play the same role. Well, I kept on dating, falling in and out of love. Didn't know what love was. I've heard it well described in AA, and I this may not be appropriate, but I'm going to use it anyway. The old saying around our program where drunks don't fall in love, they just come in heat. You know, I think this was my problem. I was in love with love. Well, three years is a long time. And I couldn't wait to locate him, to dump him. About the last six months before he returned stateside, I became frightened. I didn't like the way I was living. I didn't like the things I was doing. I told you I, in the type of a home I came from, 
and I shall be eternally grateful to my family. My father's no longer living. My mother at 83 is sharper than I am. I call her my little jet setter. She's something else. But in all of the carousing that I did, and all of the you see, had they tried to tell me what to do, I'm certain there would have been a breach there that could have never been bridged. Well, those last six months, I thought the so-and-so's got to come back sooner or later, and I'll just sit back and wait. And I stayed home, and I waited. And the phone rang one day, you know who, and I hung up. He called back a second time, and I hung up. Been waiting for him, you see, all these months. And the third time, I listened. And he said, uh, I'm in San Francisco. I'll be here a short time. Would you fly out and let's just talk about it? And I said, no way. No way. And he kept on talking and I kept on listening. And the next day I was on the plane on my way to San Francisco. I was only going to be there a very short span of time, a matter of hours, because I carried the divorce papers with me and I was going to serve him. I had trouble with step two when I came into this program. And you know, that in itself ought to tell you something. Because I don't know of anybody who ever served their spouse with divorce papers, particularly a drinking drunk. It's a sure invitation to murder. I didn't give him the papers, of course I didn't. We sat down and we started talking. And we talked and we talked. And four days later I returned to Denver to wait for Daddy to be released from active duty to start all over. And we started all over. Not only the progression of alcoholism, but the progression of moving. We went to Dallas, we stayed a short time, moved to a smaller town out toward the panhandle of Texas. We stayed less than a year, moved further out to the Texas panhandle where we spent eight years. And the progression of alcoholism, not just within the alcoholic, but within the family. Alcoholism, the family disease. I look back now and I wonder, I wonder how our boys survived. Not me, I'm a survival. I'm a survivor, I will fight for survival. I'm a fighter. Those kids lived through hell. They survived and I'll tell you about them in a few minutes. We covered a lot, you know, we do, don't we? We lie, we cheat, we steal. I don't mean material stealing. I'm talking about the stealing of affections, the stealing of love. We do this. And we think nobody knows. And then we get into this fellowship and we find out there isn't anybody who hadn't known it. The grocer knows it. Sure he does. The checks bounce like rubber balls. The banker knows it. People in the gasoline stations know it. Who washes our automobiles? Who finds the empties? Our neighbors know it. The barbers know it. The school teachers know it. There isn't anyone. You know, let's face it. How in the devil do you hide a drunk? There's just no way. If nothing else uncovers them, the odor does. Not just a booze, either. I don't know about yours, but mine just hated water. In any form. Sure, everybody knows. And we play the game of let's pretend. At the end of eight years, David said, I think we ought to move back to Dallas, and I said, I do too. You see, at the end of that eight-year period, we'd run out of everybody. We'd run out of money. We'd run out of a dental practice. We'd run out of people. We were totally bankrupt in every area of our lives. But we lied one more time. We told everyone in that little town of a little over 3,000 that we were leaving because David's mother and father needed us in Dallas. They were getting old. Now the last thing in the world they needed was us. Because you see, my little father-in-law had retired and he and my little mother-in-law were doing all of the things that they'd planned to do all their life. The last thing they needed was a drunk son, a screwed up daughter-in-law, and two mixed up grandkids. God love them, they got us. 
bag and baggage. Another reason I'm grateful to God is that they lived long enough to see their son get sober and see us attempt to put our lives back together. And they loved the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for what it was doing with their children. The next three years were living hell. They were living hell for me. I didn't know where the answers were and I didn't know what to do. I went to work immediately and I thank God I did because I believe it's the only thing that kept me out of our state hospital. I believe it would have been me who was bouncing off the rubber walls had it not been for my job. I went to work in a place I detested with every bit of my being because it was the place my spouse started his drinking career back when he was a little boy. It was on Skid Row in Dallas. I went to work for his best friend because he needed me. He told me he did. And we all have that need to be needed. It was a very responsible position, and I had to show up every morning or the office didn't get opened. I hated, oh God, I hated. And that's when the murder started. I would go home at night, and I would plan ways to get rid of him. I thought about arsenic. I was afraid the kids would get a hold of it. I thought about hiring someone to do it for me. Didn't know where to find them. You know, you read lots of good things in novels and newspapers, but how do you go about finding them? And then I thought, couldn't afford it anyway. And then I came up with the solution of the plastic bag. If I could just get him home long enough, passed out, Cleaning bags work real well. Put it over his face, asphyxiating. Put it back over the cleaning and no one would be any the wiser. He was home many times, passed out. And of course I didn't try it. I didn't have the guts enough. I'm glad I didn't. I also worried a whole lot about if he died, how were we going to bury him? We didn't have the money. We also had run out of friends by now, and I would have had to pay pallbearers. <laughs> Ever wonder about that? All of the things that go through our minds. I used to pray for him to be killed or die. Just don't let him kill anybody else. And then 10 minutes later, I was up looking out the window to see if he was driving up. When I wasn't planning his murder, I was planning my own demise. Now, I never did this with any complete and serious intention. I was always going to commit suicide just a little bit. <laughs> I wanted his attention. I stole pills out of his office, and I know enough about medicine to know what is lethal and what is not. And I stored them. I had my own little hoard going. And one night it got desperate enough. The feelings were lonely enough. The anger was strong enough. And I got in the tub, had a good old bath, and put on the prettiest gown I had, and sprayed myself with perfume, you know, and got a glass of water and pills and put them by my bed and called the doctor, crying, to tell him what I had planned to do and what I was getting ready to do. And he had the audacity to laugh at me. He said, if you were going to, you would have, and then called. He said, I strongly suggest you go to bed and come talk to me about it in the morning. And oh, I was angry with him. And then, of course, there was one weekend when I was alone, the children were gone, and he was gone. And I swallowed a couple of these good little pills so he'd come home and find me out cold. Only he didn't come home, and I woke up 24 hours later with the darndest hangover I've ever had in my life. And then there was the night I was going to turn on the gas because I'd read that that was the easiest, quietest way to go. We were living in an all-electric home. 
And I had such serious intentions about all these things. And I told you earlier I had trouble with step two. Not today. Well, time came. My phone rang in my office one day. And he said, I know you don't believe me, but I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, be my guest. And I hung up. I went home that evening. And he was home and he was sober. And he stayed home because the group he called didn't have a meeting that night. And the next day he called me back in the office and said, no, you don't believe me, but I'm going to that meeting. And he got the same response and I hung up. Went home that evening and... He was over, and he dressed, and he walked out the door. By now, our oldest son was freshman in the University of Texas in Austin. Our younger one was finishing his junior year in high school. When his daddy walked out the door, he said, Mom, do you think Dad really means it, or is it another one of his lies? And I said, Honey, we won't know till Daddy comes home. And that was April 21, 1967. Dad's been coming home ever since. And what's it like today? A week later, he invited me to my first open AA meeting, and I beat him to the car. We had had no communication in over nine months. I couldn't wait to see what you people had. To this day, I can't tell you anything about that meeting. Don't know who spoke, what was said, or who chaired. But the 12 steps are behind the podium in that particular facility at home. And I was transfixed by them. And I still am. And on the way home, he said, what did you think? And I said, those things on the wall are fantastic. If we could just give them to the world, we'd have peace. And he said, that's not the purpose of them. He'd been sober a week, and he was already an authority. <laughs> so I shut up. On Monday night, he said, how would you like to go to an Al-Anon meeting? And I said, what is that? He said, I haven't the vaguest idea, but I think it's for you. And I said, okay. And I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting. I'd love to stand up here and tell you that it was instant love. I hated it. I walked into a room full of the most pious broads I'd ever walked into in my life. I'm going to get real serious now because it's so important to me. Earlier I talked about saving lives. We in Al-Anon are in this business to save lives. I beg of you with everything that's within me, whether you be AA, Al-Anon, or Al-Ateen, when that new guy or new gal walks through that door, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth about you. Tell them how you hurt. Tell them how angry you are or were. Tell them all those ugly thoughts you thought. You know, we're not promised an easier, softer way in this program. And everything isn't beautiful all the time. For God's sake, tell them the truth. Those gals had halos and wings and they were already flying. And I couldn't identify. I didn't know enough to identify with the illness. I needed and wanted people. And I thank God for the woman alcoholic. Because if it were not for the woman alcoholic, I wouldn't be here today. My first sponsor will be sober 20 years next month. Chris had never been to an Al-Anon meeting. She was the first friend I made in the fellowship. And I treasure that friendship. And she said, honey, you're going to keep going if I have to drag you. She said, you didn't live with that sorry so-and-so 24 years for somebody else to go with him. That got my attention. <laughs> and I kept going. And I didn't like it one darn bit better six months later than I did six months earlier. But I went to the open Friday night meetings and I couldn't wait for those. And then the social chairman in that group was a little gal about five feet tall. She's now sober close to 30 years and she was 
tough enough to bite a nail into. And she asked me to help her in the kitchen for the birthday parties, and I said, oh, I can't. The Elanons aren't allowed. And I can't use the language from up here that she used. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I helped with those birthday parties. And I helped make the coffee. And I helped do something. I was made to feel a part of. Yes, I love the woman alcoholic because they kept me coming. You want to know something interesting? I didn't know that I had a choice. I didn't know that I could go to any Al-Anon group in the whole wide world. I thought David and I had joined this particular group and that's where we were going to be till death do us part. I thought it was like a lodge or a fraternity or a sorority. And in 1971, in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, your Sunday morning speaker, who always says the same thing, I've heard Dave say it, I cannot tell you how many times. If you don't think your group's the best, you get another. And that's not exactly the way he says it. You'll hear him tomorrow. I was sitting in the front row, and I thought, he's talking to me. Of course, there were about 2,000 other people there. But that was my problem. I didn't like my al group. And I needed to get myself another. And on the plane going home, I told David this, and he said, you have to go where you're comfortable. So Monday night, I walked into the Preston group, didn't know anything about it. But I walked in to the most beautiful group of people I've ever walked into in my life. They loved me in spite of me. They told me the truth about me. They told me, you don't graduate from this program. They told me, you don't take the steps and stop. In fact, they strongly suggested that it might be wise for me to start over. And I listened. And I heard. And I started over. And you know something? I've been starting over ever since. Because it's necessary for me, only for me, to take the first three steps every day in order to remember that I'm powerless. Not only over alcohol, people, places, things. And at any given time, my life can become unmanageable. I can return to that total unsound mind that I had. And I want God to do my work for me as far as guiding is concerned. I'll do the footwork if he'll just direct me. And that started a new way of life. Three weeks after I got over to Preston, David followed me, and we've been there together ever since. And he loves the group just as much as I do. We have seven Al-Anon meetings a week at night and three daytime meetings, and you just can't hardly get many more than that. We have Alateens. And I've been there less than a month when they asked me to be an Alateen sponsor. And I'd never heard of Alateen because the group I came from didn't even allow kids inside the door. And I said, not me. The present chairman at that time, another tough cookie, she looked me in the eye and she said, you are responsible. I said, okay, <laughs> I'll give it a try. And after six years as an Alateen sponsor, I retired this past April. It's the greatest experience I've ever had. If you don't have Alateen in your part of the country, I suggest you get it. Because you learn more from these kids than you'll ever learn anywhere else. Because they know what loving for free is all about. They love the alcoholic. It's me. They don't understand. Who are we to deprive, the, deprive these children of God's gift of us? You see, they've been affected by the illness just as we have. I have many people say, well, mine don't need Alateen. They never saw me drunk. I don't know about anybody else's program. The alcoholic with whom I live is one drink away from a drunk. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. How are we going to explain it to them then? If you haven't got Alateen, get it. It'll be the greatest fringe benefit you'll ever find. David's in my marriage today. We celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary this past June. 
everything isn't beautiful. Isn't that interesting? I look back on some of the talks I used to make and I could throw up right here. <laughs> because you see, it's a program of honesty. Sure, we have our problems. But no situation is so difficult and no unhappiness so great that it cannot be overcome. And through this program, we are both able to work out our problems and only through this program. Thank God. Those two kids I mentioned, of course they're grown young men today, 27 and 29. 29 year old is in Santiago, Chile, by choice. He has a marvelous title as a higher education consultant for the Chilean government. He works for the Peace Corps. <laughs> He's been gone almost two years, and he's found himself a nice little Chilean girl, and they're going to be married December 30th. And most of you know Aronofsky is not Irish, and he had to go all the way to Santiago, Chile, to find a nice Jewish girl. <laughs> and we're ecstatic over it. He has his doctorate, higher education, and he's one of the finest young men I know. And this is our son. Number two son graduated cum laude from university. And he is the chief investigator for the career criminal division for our local district attorney in Dallas. They don't come any better. He is as respected and loved as anyone in that department. And this is our son. When I used to sit back and say, why me, why me? It's with a whole different connotation today. Why me? How come I am the lucky one? Why me? To be given this opportunity to be a part of the most beautiful fellowship that God has ever created on this earth. The only way that I can ever say thank you is just to keep on keeping on one day at a time and be there when the doors are open every time a new guy or a new gal walks through them because you see I am responsible today for giving this away in order to keep it I don't know about anyone else I don't want to lose it today I can very gratefully say thank you God and thank God for you I love each and every one of you